Hi, I'm Sass. And I'm Mel. And this is The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. Welcome everyone to our latest episode of The Last Stretch. We are so happy to be back in studio, especially after our epic episode with Fred last week. Uh, Mel, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Today is Halloween on our recording day, so if you do hear some doorbells, you'll know why. It's trick-or-treaters. So today we spoke with Adrienne Crampton. She is doing her PhD in concussion research and mild traumatic brain injury research. And I hope you guys enjoy it because concussions is something that affects not only athletes, but everyday people. And she gives us a little bit of an insight on what they are, you know, sort of where research is at as far as diagnosis, treatments. Uh, I really learned a lot and I think uh, everyone should, you know, take a notepad because there was a lot of good information Take today. a notepad, guys. Okay. Listen to Teacher Mel. There'll be a test the next podcast (laughs) yay us we have the funnest podcast ever check out the interview guys hope you enjoy hey hi i'm adrian um i'm a phd student doing concussion research Uh, so my research is with children and essentially my project in and of itself is to characterize a lot of the visual and vestibular deficits that happen after um concussions uh, in children specifically but a lot of the work that we do is in both adults and children populations. All right. Thanks, Adrian, for joining us. Uh, we wanted to speak with Adrian today because concussions are something that touches a lot of sports, especially contact sports. And although her research is with children mostly, um, I think a lot of her stuff is translational. So we're just going to start off with uh, an easy question. I mean, not hard at all, but what is a concussion? So that one is surprisingly not that easy. Because concussions are a pretty broad injury. And so basically, they're a type of traumatic brain injury, and they're in the mild category. However, a lot of the impacts of concussions can be long-term, and so mild is probably often taken the wrong way. But essentially, what a concussion is, it's either a direct or indirect impact to the brain that causes... uh, different pathologies to occur um, afterwards. So, for example, a contact injury would be if somebody hits a person and their head hits a wall or hits the floor, hits any surface, that would be a direct. And an indirect would be something um, coming from maybe more of a whiplash mechanism. So, for example, in a car crash, when uh, a person lurches forward and then backwards, what happens is that the brain moves at a different speed than uh, the skull. And so then uh, the brain hits the skull and that's the impact that occurs. All right. So again, just to clarify, um, a lot of times people think it's the direct contact. It's, you know, you're injuring sort of the direct area where you had a contact. Um, But when it's not a direct hit and the brain is sort of rotating within the skull, is it is the injury occurring everywhere in the brain or can it be localized in like a certain area of the brain? Because it seems like it's such a broad brush concussions. I mean, you know, I thankfully don't think I've actually experienced one playing hockey, but, you know, many people have. Adrian um, was also a hockey player at McGill. So have you ever experienced a concussion to start? That is exactly why I'm working in the field. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I've just witnessed so many of my friends, like the symptoms are all very different. Um, Everyone seems to have different responses to it. So, like, is it one area that's getting injured or or the whole thing? Is the whole brain getting in shock? Can you maybe specify or is it too too soon to tell? Oh, definitely can specify. So, essentially, um, you were right in that it can be more of a focal injury so that would be a specific area of the brain but often even if it is a specific area that's hit the injury response of an individual will be um, of a more global nature so for example if you get hit in front of the head at at the very front or at the back or at the side yeah the impact might be localized but the response will be global and diffuse in nature so a lot of the times like you said with the different forces that can happen is that those will impact how your body react. So there's 
basically two responses to um, to the impact. So there's the initial primary injury response, which is what happens when either the hit happens or when the motion that caused the injury initially happens. And then there's the secondary injury, which is what causes all of those kind of different responses from everybody. So everybody responds differently to concussions, and that stems from that secondary injury response. And so basically, um, to your point that is it one part of the brain that gets injured, it's not because the entire brain is interconnected by tons of different um, tissues and white, what they call white matter tracks. And so a lot of the times in, in, in brain injuries and in concussions particularly, what happens is that forces that are transmitted to one part of the brain then transmit to all of the interconnected areas. And additionally, <laughs> so as you guys can see, it's pretty complicated. So um, different injuries occur within your body. So some of them are more molecular in nature. Some of them might be chemical changes. Some of them might be structural changes. And so everybody's going to react to the injury differently because of how the hit happened and also how their body structure and their anatomy responds to it. So humans are very different. Um, every human being is built differently and every impact and every concussion occurs differently. And so you mix those two together and that makes the response different in everybody. That must be so much fun when you're a researcher and you're just trying to find the solution and everyone has like a different reaction to it. And it's impossible. <laughs> it's so hard. I can't imagine what that's like. And I remember um, earlier this summer, I was actually speaking to a researcher uh, in Ottawa about concussions and like the technology that he was looking at building. And I had to listen to that conversation like three times and I can't even tell you what he said because it was like, I'll just talk about the force and like yeah. physics and it was just so complicated. And I think a lot of people have this idea. It's like, oh, concussions, like in the media, people just think, OK, you hit your head and mm -hmm. boom, you have a concussion. But it's it's so not it's not that simple. Um, I actually am interested because you said you, you do your research with children. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of people might think, OK, concussions, they usually you think of an adult hitting their head or, you know, in sports and whatever. It does happen in children. But uh, I'm curious, how come you decided to uh, work with children? So it's interesting, actually. Um, my main project is with children, but I have other projects working with adults as well. But essentially, um, I think everybody can. Well, concussions are prominent in, and prevalent in every population. Right. And actually, children and elderly people are even more prone to getting concussions. And the reason why we hear more about concussions in adult populations is because a lot of the research that's being put out is either in military populations or in sporting populations, right? Because that's where the funding for the research is stemming from. Um, but I decided to research in children because A, I love children. B, um, I think that physical activity and living a, a healthy, active lifestyle when you're young leads to a physically and healthy, active lifestyle when you're older. So if a child can't participate because they're getting injured all the time, then they might that might subsequently lead to an altered lifestyle in the future. So I really think that... Um, making sure that we're addressing the children, the child population, and also addressing like how, how do we rehab them in the right way? Because if they're affected in a permanent way when they're that young, then their entire lives are changed forever. So I, I kind of stumbled into the right lab at the right time. Mm -hmm. And now I love working with kids. <laughs> well, that's something uh, we wanted to ask you actually about demographics. Uh, is there, are there demographics that are more prone to getting, uh, I guess, head injuries or concussions? Yeah, so based off of what you said earlier about the different, um, when you went to Ottawa and you heard about all the different factors that can kind of affect how how a concussion happens, mm -hmm. that's exactly what happens in terms of why certain populations are more susceptible to injury than others and more vulnerable. Um, so essentially what happens is that um, the injury response is based off of a lot of biomechanics. And so a lot of factors, both from how the injury is happening, but also the person. And so 
certain populations and certain body structures are more prone to injury just because then they're going to absorb and react to the forces differently. So for example, in the literature, people have found that um, female versus males react differently to concussions. And it's a bit um, it's a bit subjective because some of the findings say that uh, there's a there's a bias in terms of well sometimes men won't report it as often as females, um, but at the end of the day, research has found that females do seem more vulnerable to concussions than males, uh, as well as for example elderly populations, but. As a rule of thumb, what I would say is that if you look at the human body and you look at, for example, things like neck strength or muscle mass on a person, that'll affect how they react to the injury. And also, if they've had previous injuries, that'll also affect their injury response. So there's a lot of different variables that can go into um, factoring into who's going to respond to an injury more uh, more quickly than others Mm -hmm. and so some people it'll take a small hit and and they'll have a big impact and then other people they'll have you know they'll be able to sustain crazy amounts of forces and and they won't they won't get an injury so yeah it's definitely it's it's very difficult I think like studies like this so everyone realizes it it comes down it's hard to get data because you don't have animal models that are really transferable um but also, like you said, a lot of times it's self-diagnosis. When we had Corey Kennedy on the episode and we were talking about concussions, we briefly just touched on injuries with athletes and athletes will rarely self-diagnose or report an injury because they just want to play. You know, obviously this is very different than if you're in a car accident, you know, you're going to report everything to your doctor because you want to make sure you're okay. There's there's difference because you can foresee sort of the consequences. When you're in a sport, you can't foresee those consequences. All you see is the next 20 minutes, the next period, the next shift, whatever it might be. So I guess since, you know, particularly athletes have a hard time self-diagnosis, what are sort of diagnostics tools that are out there for concussions right now? Um, And do you think those are actually working? Because for our hockey team, example we'll work with this company that um, diagnosed concussions or try to anyways and we'll take a baseline test which is like memory and balance tests and reaction times and essentially if I had a contact on ice then our athletic trainer would come up to me and put me through a series of questions and if she deemed that you know I might have a concussion she would pull me out of the game and then eventually I would repeat these series of tests and see if there's a difference in the results and you know, apparently that is sort of indicative if whether I've had a concussion or whatnot, and I would not be allowed to return to play until I could pass that test again. So maybe can you tell us what sort of diagnostic tools are out there and are they actually working? Yeah, so that's actually perfect because um, that's exactly what I'm researching is how to basically make the measures that we're using for concussions more quantifiable. So right now the measures are quite subjective, and so they're all cl- a lot of them are more clinical in nature. And what the field needs is more technology-based, um, quantifiable measures. So right now a lot of those um, those evaluations that you just described are tapping into the three main domains of symptoms that occur after concussions. So those are somatic, behavioral, well, somatic, behavioral, and cognitive. And so a lot of times you hear people talking about, um, you know, nausea and balance impairments and, you know, they might be seeing bright lights differently and not being able to process information in the same way and all that. And so a lot of the initial screening protocols um, were tapping into those types of symptoms and seeing if the person was reacting um, the way that a normal person would based off of normative data. Um, Recently, there's been a lot of advances in terms of adding um, a little bit of visual stuff in the assessment, a little bit of balance and vestibular stuff, a little bit of um, physical activity protocols. So there's there's starting to be more and more research into um, kind of pushing the body uh, to do a little bit more in these um, in these evaluative uh, measures. 
But um, I think essentially the biggest problem is just the subjectivity. And so a lot of the measures are patient reported rather than, okay, I'm going to give you a blood test and it's going to come out with um, a tangible difference than what it should. And so what the field needs is more of these um, more of these measures that you can't deny. You, it's, it's undeniable when you go in and you test, for example, um, a visual function. And if you have, you know, there's, there's certain 3D uh, goggles now that are coming out where they're going to track the way that your pupil works. And if your pupil reacts differently um, in many different ways, I won't get into that, but essentially that'll be indicative and you, you won't be able to deny that. Whereas now, like you said, if you want to go out for that next shift or if you want to get back on the field or if you want to get back to work, you can just kind of fake your way through a lot of the either return to play or the diagnostic protocols. And so... Where the field really needs to go is it needs to keep pushing the pace into trying to validate, uh, wow, into validating a lot of these like measures that are starting to exist um, to try to, to put numbers on what's missing, what the person is really lacking in their abilities, their body abilities. Awesome. So what, what, what are like the tests right now that you think are working best? So I think one of the most popular ones that's come out lately is the impact which I'm sure that you probably go through. That's what we are using on our team, yeah. Yeah, so a lot more uh, sports teams are starting to use the impact test as a, as a baseline. And so more and more teams are starting to uh, make it a requirement for all athletes to do the impact test at the beginning of the season so that then if they get injured during the season, they retake it and essentially their um, their results are compared. So this is a good step in the right direction, but the problem with that is that a lot of people don't have access to it. A lot of teams still don't have the test. Um, They don't have access to it or they don't give it until the person is injured. So then there's no baseline to work off of. And yes, it gives us insight based off of normative values. But the thing is that everybody's different. And yeah, you can get a ballpark of where you should be at based off normative values, but it's important that with any of these tests that are that are being used, that there's a baseline value. So, yeah, I would definitely say the impact is is one of the more popular ones that have just come out um, in the last you know few years, uh, and it definitely has a lot of important components to it. Something that's missing though would be that more uh, technology based measure for for some of the more specific uh, physiological things that might be going on. I have a, I find that really interesting because while I used to study in psychology and it was just a bachelor's degree, so I didn't pursue like a master's and didn't get more technical. But I know that a lot of the research that we were looking at in like at least my third and fourth year was like the bottom line was none of this is quantifiable enough. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything, which was super discouraging after like three years. I was like, why am I doing this? But um, uh I find it interesting because you mentioned that that's where the research is trying to go, is trying to become more quantifiable. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would you say are some of the challenges that you face? I mean, obviously, I know that there's a lot of factors that need to be considered and every person's different, which makes your job a lot harder. But could you maybe get into that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of different angles that people are taking um, in terms of the research and and how to try to get more nitty gritty and, and get more... Uh, tangible answers and so I would say that there's a lot of work being done in imaging there's a lot of work being done in biomarkers and genetics so more of the molecular side of things there's some work being done in um, active recovery and physical activity um, used within the realm of concussions but I think the biggest hurdle would be um, the funding and and the money that it takes for this research to happen but then also if people find that, okay, now there's more types, different types of imaging coming out. So instead of just a standard CT or MRI, there's now, uh, there's now DTI, there's now fMRIs that can really show the different brain activation patterns. And so that's really interesting because they've seen more and more um, differences. So for example, if you just had a concussion and you were put in the machine uh, for fMRI, for example, they could actually see how you would react to 
um, a task differently, how your brain would react differently than my brain. And based off of that, they can start making inferences as to what brain, what part of your brain is being, it has been affected by the hit. So these are great. And it's, it's really important that they've found this and that they're seeing that this imaging can really help. But the problem is who has access to these machines, right? Right. Um, same thing with biomarkers and genetics, who has access to being able to go and, and get tests done right. at this level of, you know, the, this is this is private. This isn't publicly funded yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so so a lot of the research is still in the works and it's helping us find answers on how to solve concussions. But it's not yet at a point where it's giving us proper answers as to how to treat people in a way that's accessible for everybody. I guess that brings me, I guess, to my next question, which is something that we we both wanted to ask, Mel and I. Um, obviously, a lot of the research that's taking place now, I think we're, there are strides that have been made. Um, and we're hearing the doorbells because we're recording this on Halloween. And we were going to make a game out of it, but we were too lame to figure out what game. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> um, a lot of the research, I feel like it's new. I don't know if that's just because, I mean, I'm not much of a you know science person. It seems relatively new. Um, and, and, you know, I feel like concussions and, and, and brain trauma and all that, People are talking about it a lot more, which makes it seem like it's only been around for the last, I don't know, 20, 40, 50 years or something like that. But they've been around for a lot longer, I would assume. Is it just that we're becoming better at detecting it or is it more uh, more prevalent in our society now? Yeah, I definitely think it's the latter. So uh, or the former, sorry. So I think that if you think of the way that humans have been living for years and years and years you know we've been playing sports we've been living our lives we've been slipping on ice we've been falling down the stairs (laughs) you know those things didn't just start happening so people have always gotten injured and it's just that recently it's been brought to light and it's been talked about more and that's why it's been diagnosed more because there's more attention on it right so it's like the concept of if you know somebody has an allergy in a classroom, you're going to pay more attention to it and you're going to make sure that, you know, you're you're testing it more and you're you just, you know, you're going to you're going to find more of it if you're looking for it. And so I think that that's really what's happening here is that a people are paying more attention to making sure um, if an injury happens, the person's evaluated. So just that extra attention will find more concussions. B people are being educated and sensitized to the symptoms that can happen. So a lot more people now, when they get hit, it's not, oh, haha, I see four fingers instead of two. How funny. It's <laughs> shake it off. Okay, we're going to take a few days off and we're going to go to the doctor. And so it's literally just, um, it's just the amount that it's being talked about and the amount that people are learning more about it and knowing more about it that basically leads to an increased diagnosis and, um, and an increase in in reporting, right? Because like Mel said, it's all a lot of it is self-reported, right? So you fall in a game or you fall at work or, you know, gen pop, sport pop, military pop. It doesn't it doesn't matter who it is, but at the end of the day, not everybody will see the hit or see the injury. So a lot of uh, a lot of it is based off of you reporting yourself. Yeah, and I think now we're just realizing the long-term consequences of you know head injuries so I think that is helping with self-diagnosis I know as an athlete I take it a little bit more serious than I did when I was younger because I foresee that I want to live a long life and I want to have a healthy life and I think we're seeing some of the scary consequences you know especially in NFL I think obviously you know news broke about concussions quite loud in that sort of population And, you know, you just hear athletes every day sort of having really long-term consequences from head injuries. And, you know, I think this is a good transition. Like, we keep hearing about CTE and, you know, what is the difference between a CTE and concussions? Are they correlated? Uh, Is it causational? Are they two different things? Could you just elaborate for people who might not know 
sort of what CTE is and the differences between the concussions and CTE. Yeah, so they're definitely correlated. And um, that brings us back to what we were talking about at the very beginning in terms of how the body responds, right? And, um, and so basically, one of the big things that happens inside the body after a concussion is, is uh, structural and it has to do with um, your axons, the axons and the neural tissue in your brain. And so what uh, a very popular in concussions is uh, diffuse axonal injury. And so what happens there is that there's little structural damage in the axons in your brain and uh, between the nerves. So basically your brain is full of white matter and, and it's very vulnerable to external forces. So anything, like you said, rotational forces, um, linear forces, uh, different velocities, different accelerations will all impact how that tissue inside your brain reacts. And so what happens with diffuse axonal injury is that all these little tears that are happening um, in the tissue uh, can lead to it propagating within your brain. And so that's a secondary injury mechanism. So that can keep happening and keep propagating after the injury occurs. So after that initial hit, it doesn't mean it's over. A lot of stuff is happening inside of your brain and a lot of stuff is happening inside of your body that is continuously um, progressing the injury. And so that's essentially what CTE is. It's a progressive neurodegeneration in your brain. And... So a lot of people think that it can only happen after concussions, but it can happen after for, for a lot of different reasons. The reason why people connect the two is because concussive forces and concussions are one of the mechanisms that can lead to CTE. But a lot of people, like you said, it's prominent in football players, it's prominent in hockey players and stuff like that. A lot of those players who've been shown to have CTE never had a diagnosed concussion, might have never had a concussion, but they might have had a lot of sub-threshold hits. So there's a certain amount, uh, there's a certain threshold that you need to hit to actually, you know, have a concussion per se. But every little hit that your body withstands, essentially little damages happen, right? And so... CT has been shown to happen in a lot of people that have just repetitive, repetitive, repetitive um, sub-threshold hits as much as they do with people who, who have actual concussive injuries or, you know, more severe injuries. And that just comes from the wear and tear that's happening in your brain. So, yeah, CT is very... Um, it's very popular and that's probably the one thing that's brought the most discussion surrounding um, concussions. As you mentioned before, there's been a lot more attention put on it and everybody thinks that a concussion is CTE and CTE is concussion, but no, a concussion is a, a mechanism of injury and CTE is a response. And it is not the only response and it's not in everybody, but it's a response that is happening in the tissues within your brain. Yeah, I think that's the scariest part because I also read like a paper on CTE and like you said, it's it's not a direct if like correlation. If you have 10 concussions, you're going to get CTE. It's all those micro hits, which is almost more terrifying because I could be living my life right now and just perfectly fine and because I haven't had like a, you know, a really hard hit to the head, but I've definitely been hit in the head. Um... So I guess this is like a good sort of segue. Like, what what do we do now? Should we all stop playing sports? Or is it one of these, it's just kind of like there's risk in life. Um, you know, we just try to play within the boundaries. Um, I guess what are your views on, especially since you study children, you know, who playing a sport is definitely going to expose them to the chance of increased concussions. Um, is there an effect on... Um, a certain age group, you know, are younger people more at risk of long-term effects with concussions? Is it too soon to tell? Would you advise parents to let their their children play contact sports at a young age? Where are we at with sort of what should we do now in regards to sports and concussions? Yeah, so that's actually one of one of the big reasons why I decided to um, to work in in children and in that population is because 
I think sports are amazing for uh, for building a human, for you know, to help humans build different tons of different skill sets and tons of different life lessons can be learned through sport. But at the same time, just like any activity in life, you need to do it in a smart way. And so there's definitely people who practice sport in a more smart way than others um, and not intellectually based, just in terms of uh, injury smarts. And so the way that you can kind of think of what we can do now is is the prevention branch, because basically you can go when it comes to concussions, you can go prevention or rehabilitation and what next once it happens. So the prevention branch could kind of be separated into three groups. One would be a lot of works being done surrounding um, uh, equipment and equipment changes. A lot of research is being done surrounding um, implementing guidelines and protocols. And then a lot of work is also being done with uh, education and educating people on a concussions and and what they are but also educating people how to practice their sport in a more safe manner and a more respectful manner for both themselves and their teammates and so I guess if we wanted to talk a bit about each of those categories um, prevention with equipment so one of the big things that's happened with equipment is that over the years if you look at hockey equipment for example and you look at players who played you know, you look at an old NHL game and the goalie looks tiny in their net and the players <laughs> yeah. look tiny, right? Yeah. Because the equipment was about half the size, not nearly as hard. And so a lot of headway is being made with with the equipment and, and the protective, you know, qualities of it. And there's there's continually going to be advances because sports are getting stronger, faster. And so you need better equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the better, uh, the more science evolves, the more we know about what aspects to take into consideration when developing the equipment and the more, you know, engineers fine tune, then it's perfect. It's a perfect merge of different domains in science and they can all work together to try to decrease, um, the injuries that occur because at the end of the day, people are going to play sports. And so the better the equipment, the, the more prevention there is. Uh, in terms of guidelines and protocols, a lot more um, a lot more guidelines are are being developed in different sports, um, both within private clubs, but also through governmental agencies. In terms of um, what to do uh, to prevent concussions, and also what to do uh, when people are undergoing concussions so that's really important um, to have kind of a structured approach to how to to how to prevent and to how to kind of um, tackle this issue head-on and in a more standardized manner across the board and then finally uh, education so I think that education is the best thing that everybody can do in this world whether they're a coach whether they're a friend whether they're a family member whatever and essentially that just stems from educating people like you said Mal on okay, well, you're more aware of what concussions can do. So you've changed, you've adapted, A, your outlook on on it, B, how you probably play, and how you also react when you do get a hit. And so the more we know and the more we understand um, the nature of the injury, what's happening, and also what can happen if we're not smart about it, the more people will adapt. And you don't want a sports... A sport to change but for example if you can change your outlook and go and and play hard and not purposely be hitting people in the head and not purposely putting your head in a vulnerable situation then all the better and so the more people learn about head injuries and the detrimental consequences the more uh, rule changes are going to happen in sports so now there's a lot higher rep- um, penalties and repercussions when you do give a, he- a head hit or a headshot um, but also you see more and more players frowning upon teammates or frowning upon opponents who do those types of hits. So before they used to be celebrated and now they're frowned upon. So that's huge in and of itself because now people are doing it a lot less. Mm-hmm. And so the more we can advance kind of people's knowledge on the detrimental consequences, the more we're going to see that shift in how people play the game. And I think that that can, that can come from literally everybody in the world just, you know, 
talking and becoming more respectful in how they practice sport. For sure. It seems like, I mean, the best solution for now is, is behavioral change. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Fred, uh, last week, uh, a rugby player, really attests to that because I asked about just being such a physical sport. And she, you know, enlightened me. She's like, you learn how to hit properly. You learn how to receive a hit. Because at the end of the day, no one really wants to get hurt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess it is, like you said, if we could just all, like, sort of respect, um, sort of, I, I guess, each other's heads in at the bottom of the line there, just playing the game with respect and trying to avoid, sort of, head contacts. I mean, sometimes it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're going to toe pick and you're going to slide into the board's head first. It, it might happen. But I guess right now, with your research... Um, being with children, where do you get your data? And I guess like we always keep coming back because every hit is so different. When studying something like concussions where you could have head contacts that are, you know, straight on or the whiplash, how how do you sort of objectively get your data so that you can study it? Um, personally, in your research, where does your data set come from? So I guess everybody, everybody will look at that in a different way based off of what they have access to, right? Um, and I think the best way, I guess the best approach and and the approach that everybody would love to be able to do is to be able to reproduce every hit, right? And so um, actually a lab in Ottawa does that where they reproduce. I think that's the lab. Blaine Hojizaki's lab. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I to him. <laughs> so that's an amazing lab in terms of they're replicating and they, they've been able to reproduce the... Um, the hit on Sidney Crosby. They've mm-hmm. uh, they have a bunch of um, of machinery that they've actually created in, within their lab, and it's unique uh, across the world. Um, in terms of being able to to reproduce an exact injury mechanism, to then be able to look at all of the variables in play, and then they also have a brain model. Mm-hmm. They have like an, uh, a male brain model a female brain model and I think they're working on a child brain model right and so being able to reproduce the hit on an actual brain model that is the dream right (laughs) that doesn't happen yeah that's the golden nugget but that doesn't happen everywhere and so what a lot of people do is um is they retrospectively take as much uh information as they can from their population. And so, for example, in my project, we recruit from the ER and a concussion clinic. And so uh, people who come in, actually, those are two different projects. Some <laughs> you can <laughs> recruit from the ER and you get people coming in and, and they've they've had a concussion or a mild traumatic brain injury. And um, and they come in and you you go in, you tell them that you're doing research and they'll uh, they'll accept to be part of your study. And then they'll come in for an evaluation. And uh, for my specific project, we recruit from the concussion clinic within the hospital. And so these are people who have been um, experiencing prolonged symptoms. So they have had a concussion and they're experiencing kind of more prolonged symptoms. And so they come into my study and we evaluate them. And my project, we've we've included a ton of different um, measures because essentially that's that's what makes it, it difficult to study concussions is like you said, what, what do we measure? There's so many different factors, right? And so we've included measures in all the different um, realms. So the somatic, the behavioral, the cognitive, but then we've also included um, visual and vestibular measures. And we've brought in some technologies that haven't yet been validated in the hopes of validating this technology to be able to put a number on what's happened to that person's visual system and vestibular system. And based off of that, we can get a lot of insight into their brains because your visual system is connected to all four lobes of your brain. Uh, 32 cortical areas are involved and it's just, it's crazy. Like so much (laughs) of your brain is involved in vision. And so just by uh, testing different eye movements, you can you can get a lot of insight as to what part of your brain's been affected. Um, same thing with your with your vestibular system. Um, using technology that can actually give you numbers um, of like off of different parameters, but you can get actually numerical values of what they're lacking or what they're 
they're too much of or too little of, um, that can really kind of give you uh, more tangible answers. Um, but what I would what I would say is that every every lab does it differently, and every research project has different um, measures, and that's all based off of what their funding allows them to do and what their study is powered for. Because the more outcome measures you include. Um, in your study, the more people you need. Research is hard. Research is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I know people. People who don't do research often like wonder why things take so long. Um, mm-hmm. It's really hard. No, that's mm. the reason I didn't go into research. I knew it was gonna take long. I was like, mm, I'm not patient. <laughs> well, enough. it's hard, and we're really hard on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know we really we're not gonna come out with some uh, you know a paper or a result in, until like your whole peer reviewed community time. agrees. So obviously, I mean, sometimes for the layperson, it seems frustrating when you know, we know people are getting injured. We want a solution right away. Um, I guess the important things is that there are people like Adrian working on it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And you don't want something half-assed either. No, so we're getting there. (laughs) Slowly but surely. How long has your research been taking place? Um, I started it just over a year ago. Okay. Um, So the project is going to be another two years, and then I'll take another year to write. Okay. And analyze all that information. Um. Yeah, no, generally PhDs are between four and six years. Right, right. Um, but I mean, it's fun because I was telling Mel about that. You can have a bunch of different side projects as you're going along. And so say, so for example, me, like I'm working on children, but two of my side projects are adults right. and another one is just with sporting population. So it's neat. I mean, as long as research takes, like it's fun because you can touch on a lot of different aspects mm-hmm. of one domain. And so... So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I feel like it, by working on different things, it, it might lead you to realize something about oh, another totally. one of one of your other projects. And you're like, oh, but then if you were just focusing all your attention on like one thing, I feel like you'd lose your mind. Yeah, <laughs> I've done that before with other things. And I'm just like, God. <laughs> oh, definitely. And it also helps you because, you know, over the course of a PhD, sometimes you get super excited about um, what you're learning and what mm-hmm. you're researching and you just want to share it with the world. And so a lot of uh of my peers and myself were implicated in different kind of like um programs with schools or um different clubs or different non-for-profit organizations that are in that field Mm -hmm. to kind of help spread knowledge spread word translate um essentially just translate the findings and translate the knowledge and uh yeah it's 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 pretty exciting I wanted to ask you, and and if you don't want to talk about it, I totally understand, but you said one of the reasons why you got into this research was because you yourself had experienced a concussion. Yeah. Was that when you were playing hockey? Yeah, I actually had uh, five pretty bad concussions. So um, I had a couple when I was younger, and then I had five within the span of, I would say, uh, between my last year of high school and uh, my last year of university hockey. So we get five years of university hockey. And so over the course of the hits, um, they just got progressively worse mm-hmm. and they would get they would take progressively longer to kind of recover from. And the last one, it took me basically three years to recover from. Wow. So that's why I stopped playing. Right. Um, but that really drove me to really want to find a solution and help the field um, kind of progress in a, you know in different ways and so actually the branch that I'm in is the branch that I've I've noticed um, there's a huge connection and there's a huge gap there uh, in terms of a lot of people who have lingering symptoms and a lot of so people they say that um, about 80 percent of 80 to 85 percent of people with a concussion recover within three months and that's great but then there's 15 percent or 10 to 15 percent that don't and they could have symptoms for the rest of their lives or they could have symptoms for years or months or whatever but those people struggle and you said you take psych and so a lot of them struggle psychologically Mm -hmm. a lot of them struggle in terms of quality of life because a lot of your day-to-day activities are um, are affected by a lot of the different symptoms that can happen and that can linger and so um a lot of those symptoms have to do with uh, angles that haven't yet been addressed in in rehab. And so re- rehabilitation is constantly advancing in terms of uh, concussions, but there's a lot of progress that needs to be made. 
And a lot of people think, okay, well, you've gotten back to 80% of your norm. Like, that's great, whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, nobody wants to live at, you know, 80% 80 of their normal. They want to live at 100% of their normal. And I really do think that there's a way to get there. It's just, it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of research. And it's going to take a lot of, you know, uh, global support, financial support. And it's, you know, it's going to take a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And... um, you never tell someone if they're like at eighty percent of like anything. Like, if oh yeah, I'm eighty percent recovered from like my cold. Yeah, you know what? Oh, okay, good yeah. for you. But yeah. I think that's fine. Exactly. You don't need to do anything. <laughs> You're getting eighty yeah. percent. Well, but like when you when you think about other injuries, yeah. right? And that's what that's what yeah. infuriates me is that when you think of other injuries, like you go to to the hospital and you break your arm and you get a cast yeah. and then you go to physio until it's better, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. you keep working at it until it's better. But people just you know, as soon as uh, as soon as you've cleared your return to play or as soon as you've cleared, like, oh, okay, like, you can sleep again, you can mm-hmm. see again, you can hear noises again. Okay, you're good. Yeah. I think it boils down to the fact that you just can't see it. And it's, can't. it sucks. Well, and, and, like, it's, and that's the reason. Because if you can't see it and you can't feel what the other mm-hmm. person's feeling, you have such a hard time relating. So it's so easy to be dismissive. For sure. But that totally. has its consequences, too, on the person feeling like they're not yeah. believed or, like, that, they're, that they shouldn't be feeling as bad as they are. Yeah, and a lot of people, and that's where I, I said, like, a lot of the behavioral changes and mm-hmm. a lot of the psychological changes happen is that, like, Especially if a person doesn't have the right network of people around them that are going to get it, that are going to, um, you know, really understand that they're still living something. Well, a lot of people start kind of retracting yeah. and they start uh, being more um, more closed off in mm-hmm. terms of of the world around them because, you know, nobody can see what they're feeling. Right. So nobody can understand it. And a lot of people aren't you know, they don't have the, the luxury of, of being surrounded by amazing people. And mm-hmm. so then, especially those people who aren't well supported, then they're going to retract and, and you know, there's going to be a lot of like detrimental uh, consequences to their well-being because at the end of the day, like if you're constantly in chronic pain or if you're chronically mm-hmm. like you chronically have different symptoms happening in your life, like it sucks. Yeah. I mean, and, I have a friend who has, I think it's fibromyalgia and yeah. you can't see that. And mm-hmm. and the number of times she's she's so great because she talks about it so much and she mm-hmm. tries to get people to understand like just because I look happy in my photos and mm-hmm. you know I'm at school and doing stuff doesn't mean that I'm not in pain and suffering. Yeah, yeah, I do all this stuff despite that. And then there are days that you know she just can't. Yeah, but and it's again and one of those things you can't see totally. Yeah. And that's where that's where the education component is just so important because mm-hmm. if people just get it, like yeah. they'll get why their friend who got hit the other day and it's three months later and you know a lot of the times like especially kind of you know youth or adolescents or young adults who are you know you're macho you're invincible like (laughs) you should be fine shake it off yeah Yeah. shake it off (laughs) and then like you know it's been a few weeks or it's been months or you know god forbid longer Mm -hmm. um people who don't understand that it's actually still happening and that person actually is still like suffering something it's not all in their head they'll just kind of like they'll get frustrated with their friend and they'll you know they'll kind of leave them Mm -hmm. but at least if more and more people understand the physiology behind it and the long-term nature that can happen to some people then they'll be more patient with that person they'll give that person more of the types of supports that they need right and like you said, there's there's such a change in mentality, which is really good to see. Uh, one thing I'm wondering, I mean, obviously you you had your fair share of concussions. Now you work in it. Is there something like has your perspective on it changed? Has you have you learned something that you're like, damn, I wish this was common knowledge back when I was going through this? I guess a bit to your point, Mel, in terms of I think in the last 10 years, it's been spoken about a lot more mm-hmm. and people um react to hits differently and you'll also you'll take care of yourself differently so uh today i think a lot more people when they get hit they'll take it seriously Mm -hmm. and realistically for high level athletes you'll probably still want to go back out there but more and more people now even though the same level of wanting to go back out there is is still there more and more people will 
stop and take care of themselves and take care of healing because they know what can happen after. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably the biggest thing I've learned because no matter if it's kind of like a gen pop person or an athletic person, you know, if somebody comes and like a lot of people, you know, if you're my research and concussion, so a lot of people, oh, my friend, my family, my grandma, my uncle, like, you know, <laughs> everybody who has a concussion <laughs> comes to me. I'm like, guys, come on. <laughs> Tell me all the secrets. <laughs> Just say you're like an astrophysicist. Oh They'll be like, oh, okay. crazy. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. Like, I'm archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, like the biggest thing that, um, that I guess I learned is just like it's take care of it like listen to your body and be in tune with your body and because you can't see it and you can't control it and it's not known there's no known way to like fix it yet Mm -hmm. but there's definitely a lot to be said about listening to your body and listening to what it's saying to you and so I guess like the more and more people I talk to and the more people that come to me it's a the first thing I'll tell them is listen to your body B, the second thing I'll tell them is keep looking for answers in terms of uh, recuperation. Mm-hmm. Not in terms of why did it happen, blah, 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 because that's a bad thing to get lost in. Yeah. But in terms of, okay, like physio didn't work, go try osteo. Osteo didn't work, go try AT. AT didn't work, go cry, try like craniosacral. You know, keep trying to find another alternative because something's going to work. And what worked for someone won't work for you. What worked for you won't work for someone else. And it might be a mishmash. And I hope one day the field will get to a point where you can kind of, that's my life goal, you can kind of like walk in to a place and it's a one-stop shop and you can get all the support you need. Realistically, we're not there yet. And so I tell people, I'm like, you need to make your own um, clinical care pathway, basically. You need to go out there and not settle for like partial recovery and Mm -hmm. know that okay keep trying yeah Yeah. keep trying like try something different try something new and like be patient yeah I guess that's the frustrating part because we don't know the clear path to rehab for this for this type of injury but I think this is a perfect way to end just sort of keeping positive if you do you know have symptoms after a concussion keeping positive looking for answers actively you know being positive about it knowing that you will find something that might work for you eventually i think also we should end on what are classic symptoms of a concussion if people aren't sure Mm. for parents out there maybe who you know they don't have access to the impact test or whatnot what what are sort of classic symptoms and are there any maybe there aren't well i for one i so i hit my head really hard because i'm an idiot um while i was outside <laughs> did you fall no i was sitting and this is the worst part i was you don't need to a, fall mel you want to know the story <laughs> yeah, exactly. did you not learn anything you your head uh, back and forth. no i was this was like a few years ago i was filling out passport information outside on a summer day mm. and i knew where i was sitting there was like a pole above my oh, head no. and i was like that just, just whatever up. you do just don't get up like suddenly just get up gradually obviously i forgot full force bash and so then and then you know like (laughs) i don't want to laugh but it's so painful it's painful and it's hilarious because i love it me this would happen (laughs) so much so so then i i tell my family my family god bless them i love them all but all anxious people and i regret telling them because they're like (laughs) oh concussion protocol (laughs) and so i was like okay and then it got me i I started like over feeling my my symptoms or whatever it was like obviously you you feel your head after you hit it Mm -hmm. but i i started freaking out about it so like i think at 3 a.m like when i went to bed they were like okay we have to make sure that you can wake up so oh, yeah that's a <laughs> don't let you fall asleep <laughs> so I was yeah okay i guess tell us the classic symptoms if they are and myths yeah. about concussion <laughs> cover the myths bust them up right now could i have had a good night's sleep that night <laughs> likely you very likely could have had a great night's sleep <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um oh wow so the symptoms are many fold there's so many symptoms um the classics though um i would definitely say any stimulus right so are you hearing things differently so is is a doorbell louder is a person's coughing louder you know so hearing um seeing 
So if your sight is impaired, a lot of the times um, that's a good indication. You can also look into somebody's eyes. So are their pupils really dilated? Um, that's a huge that's a huge giveaway. Um, hearing, seeing, uh, energy. Energy is a huge one. So a lot of t- a lot of times people will be tired, um, will be very sleepy, uh, lethargic, um, mood. Mood is huge. So uh, a lot of people can be like uh, anxious, nervous, um, angry. So just like any mood disturbance, uh, that's a huge indicator. Um, nausea, dizziness. Um, so if your if your body is reacting to the world around it differently, that's a huge uh, that's a huge indication as well. So a lot of the times it's do you have a few of these? Because people can have like one or two, and it's generally it's okay. But do you have a few of these types of symptoms? Yes. Then generally you go and you should go check get checked out by a doctor. Mm-hmm. Just you know just to be safe. But uh, but those are good indicators, right? And those are all things that we can observe with ourselves and, and a lot of the times an outsider perspective, right? So if I'm good friends with someone and I see that, you know, they're reacting to, to, to stimulus around them and, and they're tired and they're just acting differently, then bam, you mm-hmm. know, like that's a huge indication. I have, I know we wanted to end it on this. And also I do think I could have slept that night because I had barely any of those symptoms. Sleep's actually for... really good for you when you <laughs> yeah. really good Can you for you. Buzz that's why. If people don't know, oh, yeah. this myth was that it, I guess it's a myth. Every, like, what, every couple of hours is that you the yeah. Every yeah. someone, <laughs> yeah, you couldn't let someone who probably had a concussion sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so that is like severe brain injuries <laughs> you know um not yeah, to take severity away from concussions but like people with concussions need sleep it helps the brain recover <laughs> let them so, sleep so maybe okay if you're anxious of getting them sleep go get them to the doctor the doctor will tell them they can sleep and then get them back. Oh, man. busted busted i can't wait to tell my mom this when i get home um this is kind of random uh but i just thought of it what's your opinion on concussion spotters in the NHL, oh. they have a lot of those. And I feel like this episode could go for days. This could go on oh, for days. Yeah. But just so yes, many things. I, I want to know the answer to this. Okay, keep going. Uh, this is fun. I like. This. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to write my exam <laughs> um, at all. So keep going. Um, make it a two-part episode. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's perfect. Bonus round. <laughs> <laughs> um, spotters. That's super neat. Actually, you know what? I've never actually thought of my of my own personal opinions on it, but um, immediate reaction would be that I really like it. Yeah, I really really like that concept because think about it. Um, I know that none of my coaches or ATs saw the last hit I got. I know that a lot of the kids that I coached, um, I missed some of the hits that hit them, you know, and they came off, and like I knew something was up, but mm-hmm. I was looking a different way. Um, but as much as it helps a, you know, see the person and see the hit, it can also give a lot of extra information in terms of like, um, when you want to treat it and when you want to diagnose it, mechanism of injury is huge. So if people were able to see how the hit happened, not only can they, um, not only can they be, can they call bullshit? Mm Mm-hmm. I just had to say it. <laughs> We're about like, an hour in. Just, yes. I had to. <laughs> the smile that crept up on your face. I was like, what's she going to say? <laughs> no, but actually, right? Like, yeah. so many people try to fake it, and it's just like, bullshit. Dude, I can see it in your eyes. Yeah. Like, you're not even standing straight. Yeah. And so, if someone spotted it, they can say, I know you got hit, and I know it was hard, and I know it was in a way that's known to be vulnerable to concussions. Right? right? So A, seeing the hit, knowing, okay, calling it out. But B, it can really help a lot with um, with figuring out how what might be going on inside that person based off of how the hit happened. So there's definitely a lot to be said about spotters. It's cool. Oh, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, so I guess with sort of that vein of thought, um, let's say you had a contact to the back. Is that different symptoms than if you had a frontal contact yeah so um that's what's really interesting and that i'm really hoping in the next decade more and more um correlations and links will be made 
with uh, with essentially the mechanism of injury, the what's going on in your body, and how that's displayed in the human. So based off of because a lot of the a lot of the reports are symptoms based right like signs and symptoms um, but those signs and symptoms aren't telling us like what part of the brain or what part of the body even because it can involve different body areas as well as the brain are being impacted right um, but more and more research the more and more research that's being done the more and more indications that okay if people are getting hit um, with rotation for example it causes a lot of um a lot of the midbrain structures to um, like a lot of the white matter within the midbrain structures to to be tweaked to be affected and um, so those will cause more severe injury and a lot more shearing a lot more tearing um, within those tissues than for example just like a blunt impact that that might just be more straight on so rotational acceleration um, and velocity is seen to be more detrimental than uh, a more linear one and then also, uh, depending on what part of your brain and what area, like what side, it can definitely have a huge difference um, because every part of every area in your brain controls a different part of your body and a different part of um, human function, right? So depending on where the hit happened and then also depending on um, how your brain within your head reacted to that, uh, that'll that'll be a huge factor and yeah yeah I mean so so for people who might not know brain anatomy like Adrian and I know but essentially the brain is very interconnected but it's also topographically laid out which can tell us a lot so example like you have your visual system will kind of be in one area you have your frontal lobe which will be a lot of behavior stuff so it can tell us a lot more about sort of again like mechanism of action or if we see you know with spotters you know, where the hit or contact was made, maybe we can make some inferences on, you know, presumed symptoms. Obviously, it's not as straight edge cuts in the brain. It does communicate with a lot of parts, but um, it can give us some insight onto what can be expected with certain injuries. I knew that. Totally. <laughs> Somewhere at the back of my brain, there was that knowledge from five years ago. I was like, oh, maybe that's what the prof was telling me. That's why was... those imagings are so cool. <laughs> like they're super, they're super expensive. But if you can ever go into one of those machines that shows the activation patterns, it's mm. sick. You can see like, cool. yeah. Mm. And if you're interested, what is it called? The homunculus graph? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that. I got to Google it. Homunculus graph. It's basically a graph that it correlates brain tissue to. Um, it's like a, a depiction of a human. Yeah. And it's sort of the size oh, of this. each body. I remember this. <laughs> yeah, this oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it yeah, called yeah. a homunculus graph? Yeah, and the lips are huge yeah. and the hands <laughs> are homunculus. huge. Homunculus graph. So close. Okay. Yeah. Google homunculus graph. Basically, it's going <laughs> to give you how oh, much brain awesome. tissue is allocated to each body part um, so you could visually see it. It's quite cool. That's not it. This isn't it. <laughs> I pulled it up on Google for... for people listening it's, that's like a 3d version of it <laughs> that <laughs> totally was <laughs> oh that's it oh yeah this there's there's two versions i've always yeah. seen two versions of this yeah, the 3d version <laughs> and this <laughs> flat version google it google it it's cool we could talk about concussions for hours clearly there's just so much out there to discuss but uh, i think we should call it quits for now Thank you so much for coming on, Adrian. Thanks for having me, guys. No problem. Maybe we'll revisit this uh, in a few episodes. Yeah, part two. Because part two would be good. Stay Perfect. Tuned. We'll have a game ready. For sure. Yeah, <laughs> this time we'll, we'll get someone to ring the doorbell just because. Yeah. <laughs> well, happy Halloween, even though it'll be Monday. <laughs> happy belated Halloween. <laughs> Costumes are always fun, guys. Come on. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Saf's underscore on the go, at Mel the Rock, and at Last Stretch Pod. Our theme music is by James Blonde. You can find their music at jamesblonde.ca. This show is produced and edited by Tom Zalatni for the Upford Network. Find out about all of our great shows at upfordnetwork.com. Thanks for listening.
On September 16, 1993, NBC aired the first ever episode of Frasier, a spin-off series about psychiatrist Dr. Frasier Crane, the much-loved Seattle shrink from Cheers. Ten days earlier, a baby was born. A baby who, we'd come to learn, was destined to have someone pay him $264 to watch through every episode of Frasier with different special guests, unpacking the deeper themes behind each episode. That baby is me, Tom Zalatnai, and this is a terrible, terrible idea. Tune in to They're Calling Again, right here on the Upford Network. Oh, hi. Um, can you wait on it? Oh, shit. I don't know Hi, yeah. Um, I'm just gonna wash my hands here. Uh, I know what you're wondering. What are you doing in my bathroom? Well, this is very easy to explain. Hold on, hold on. Let me, let me just blow dry my hair here. Uh... I'm here to tell you about Lasers on the Ride podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcast. It's a mix of comedy, uh, interviews, and the existential drama that only real life can bring. Now I'm going to go take a shower. Goodbye.